I'm Stefan Ango, and you're listening to Well Made, special on-the-road intro today for this episode we recorded a couple weeks ago with Claire Evans and Jonah Bechtolt. They're the creators, musicians, artists behind the band Yacht. We get into their music, but also many of their passion projects, which includes the app Five Every Day. This is a great app if you're in Los Angeles trying to find something to do, five amazing things events, places that you can go to every day, um, books and products that they've been working on recently, our mutual love of science fiction. They're two very funny, smart cats. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Claire, Jonah. Yeah. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Thanks. Thank you. What's your favorite sci-fi movie? I want to start there. Ooh. <sighs> like recent or all time? And any that both. comes to mind. Let's do both. Both. Yeah. I mean, 2001, all time, probably. I think that's I mean, that's kind of a basic answer, but that's, it's also when something is so canonically good that you can't really go against. Recent, there's been a lot of good sci-fi movies recently. Ooh. I really liked Under the Skin. Yeah. Scarlett Johansson. I haven't seen that. Um, What's who your else? hot take on Ghost in the Shell? Oof. Problematic, of course. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'm living proof that it was like a gateway drug to the original anime because I had never seen it. And I, we saw Ghost in the Shell while we were on tour somewhere in Amsterdam, in, in Holland. Yep. And afterwards, I was like, I bet the original is really good. And here we are, you know? Now Not I know that, about the old stuff. So it, it made sometimes us it's good. So excited to watch the original that we watched it that night. We did like a double feature. Oh, wow. Yeah. So loved it. Loved the original. And then, like, we were at a. a um, Flea market in Holland, and I bought a coat based on the original Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> what does that mean? You bought a coat. There's in a character. Holland. I can't remember the name of the characters, but there's a character who has like a cool kind of uh, it's camouflage. Like, uh, oh, what's the name, the name of that technology is? Yeah, there's a cool name. It's for like that. a shielding, you know, yeah, kind of cool you trench coat. It's the iconic scene where they're on like the on water. The water. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you got an invisible trench coat. <laughs> he got a white <laughs> trench coat. Yeah, he got a white great. trench coat. It's great. But I thought that movie convenient. looked really cool. It you know, I mean, it suffers from all the problems that major Hollywood movies have mm. in terms of casting. But but I think you're right because I had seen the original a couple times, and there's some people that will never watch an anime. They just I don't know why. It's like a black and white movie. You can't convince certain people to watch that kind of movie. Totally. And so. It exists and it has a lot of the same themes. And so if you, you know, if I'm trying to get someone to talk about that, at least I can point them to this version. For sure. I mean, we live in a world where all media has to have like 10,000 different forms and iterations Mm. for every cultural lens. So maybe it's just like there'll be a ghost in the shell everything. You know, there'll be a ghost in the shell podcast and they'll they'll (laughs) all be different and they'll all be for different audiences and they'll all have their problems. And the only really good one will be the original, just like always. Yeah. Hey, what's that sci-fi movie uh, with the hippies that surf in space at the end? Oh my and god! The bomb uh, is Black Hole is that what it's called? No, no. Dark, I you were Dark, Star. <laughs> Dark Star. Dark Star. Dark Star. That's a great yeah, movie. Yeah. That's John Carpenter's yeah, first yeah, movie. Original. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I have an obsession with the Jodorowsky's Dune. Yeah, oh, I know yeah. That. And oh god, he so talks good. about that uh, yeah. movie a lot. Oh well, god! Did so- you? I read somewhere that. What's your story about video stores? Were you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up in a video store. What does that mean? <laughs> I was born in a video store. Uh, no, when okay, so when I was five years old, uh, my parents moved back to their hometown of uh-huh. Astoria, Oregon, after moving around a ton, and they were given uh, a gas station that had it was like a multi-purpose gas station. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a gas station and a deli at the time. 
And then they turned it into a gas station and a deli and a video store. And then as me and my older brothers got a little bit older, (laughs) it became a gas station video store and video game rental store. And then it's final final incarnation was (laughs) gas station, deli, video store, video game rental store, and all ages venue. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of how I met all of my best friends through, yeah, through shows there. But yeah, it was a video rental store. We did the tag system. Oh. Not the give you the box and you put the video in the box, but yeah. What's the tag system? <laughs> so Old there's school. A, there's a hook underneath every displayed video box. Mm-hmm. So you can pick up the box and you can look at the box and it's not protected. It's just raw box. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then if you want to rent it, you remove the tag, which is on the hook in uh-huh. front of it. Oh, yeah. okay. Bring the tag up. It's a numbered system. And then they give you the tape, but is it in a box? It's in, yeah, it's okay. in, it's in it's, its a- own like unbranded plastic ah. box. Yeah. It was very lo-fi. So what do your parents do now? Uh, My mom, uh, she consults for Multnomah County clerk in elections. So she like helps. Mm. uh, She used to design like voter pamphlets and oversee like uh, countywide elections. And my dad works at an amazing grocery store chain called New Seasons, Mm. which someone had a great analogy for what New Seasons is. It's like, I don't know. It's like Whole Foods, uh, but cheaper. It's cheaper. (laughs) But also a video store. No, (laughs) it doesn't have any of that stuff. But yeah, it's in the Northwest. And then also there's like one in Northern California now. So you've seen a lot of movies. Yeah. And And a lot of retail products. And well, yeah. But then the reason this all came to mind was because you guys recently did an alien explain what that was yeah oh yeah sure uh we did a live score to the original alien 1979 we replaced alien. the score yeah we took out the music <laughs> and put our own music and we had the, we had the cojones to do that uh for uh screening at lacma it which wasn't was our idea lacma asked us to do it <laughs> we would never we would never deface a film in that way unless we were asked and paid to do it uh, so it was, was live with an audience and it was you guys live with an audience and we yeah. were playing all the music live it was kind of tricky because the way that you do that is you get like a 5.1 blu-ray mm. mix and you pull out the audio but then sometimes you lose the sound effects mm. and some of the dialogue so we had to do a lot of like machinations to make the the film really work as a film with dialogue and our music and sometimes some of our own sound effects as well just to cover the void this is off the record i mean it's on the record i just want to say that <laughs> but uh yeah a lot of the sound effects were missing in places so i i found uh, the video game alien isolation someone mm. like i don't know how they, they ripped all of the sound effects from that and then had like maybe 10 gigs of RAR files that I downloaded and then replaced a bunch of sound effects. We used effects some from screams the from the video game. Yeah. But it was a one night only thing, so please don't sue so us. Nobody, so nobody sue us, please. It's it's uh, it's just a one-time thing. Nobody can see that. Nobody can see it. We were toying with the idea of releasing just our compositions. Just the soundtrack? Just the soundtrack, because it was yeah. cool. I mean, the, the, the premise for us was that uh, Ridley Scott originally wanted Tamita to do the score. Tomita was like this Japanese 70s synth guy. And um, studio wouldn't go for it. So they went for mm. like a more classical, you know, normal, normal score, whatever that means at the mm-hmm. time, you know, like a symphonic score. Um, and we were like, well, it would have been so great if it had had like a really great like John Carpenter style, like heavy yeah. synth soundtrack. So that's what we did. We just reimagined it as that. Yeah. And it worked. I think it worked really well in a lot of places. Like some of the alien chase scenes of like an acid baseline on a cool synthesizer sounds terrifying. Yeah. Extra it terrifying. It was fun. That reminds me, Air did that soundtrack for the like one of the first movies ever with... The moon that gets the oh yeah voyage to the yeah center. Called? George yeah, like Melies yeah yeah the voyage from to the, from 
from yeah. the Jules Verne. It's fun. Yeah, I mean, it's always video. fun to kind of like, you know, it's kind of what remixing is. You know, yeah. you get to have carte blanche over someone else's art and do it as you would have done it if it had been yours to do. And that's always an interesting way of understanding your own process and also understanding how other people make things. Like you get really into the guts of it. We watched Alien probably 60 times. Yeah. Um, and took and like broke down scene by scene, like all the cues and stuff. So you start to have kind of a structural appreciation for a film or any work of art when you do something like that. I thought it was, it to me, like created solid evidence that Alien is one of... I can't believe I didn't say Alien when you asked what my favorite science fiction movie was because it really is a perfect film. There's not yeah, a single scene that's out of place. off the top of my head remember any of the score, the original score. Yeah. That's weird. That's the thing. It's, it's very it's, subtle, actually. It's, There's almost no music in it. It's so perfect that you can, it's unmemorable. It's one of those, it's yeah. Like, it just sounds like movie music and like, it yeah, just the falls cues are perfect. into it. You know, and a lot of the most like people kept asking us like, what are you going to do for the chest burster scene? You're going to need something really dramatic. But like in the original mm. film, there's no music there at all. Like a lot of the highest tension moments, it's, they're tense sense. because of yeah. the acting is good and the, and the staging is good and claustrophobic. When the new Blade Runner trailer Oof. came out, I was like, what are they going to do? Because mm-hmm. the music is so, I, I listened to the Blade Runner soundtrack like all day long. Oh, in this apartment? I'm sure in, it works very well. <laughs> well Glass I'm, bricks, I, <laughs> ferns, Blade Runner soundtrack. <laughs> well, whenever it's rainy in LA, I'll just put that on. Yeah. Or whenever I'm at the office and I just need to like work, I'll just like put put it on and it's, it's just great. like a... It's Mood. great. It's a, it's legitimately great. I mean, you know, it's Vangelis. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I'm, I have mixed feelings about that movie. I hope it's good. I really hope it's good. It has some of my favorite female actresses in it of all time. Jared Robert. Leto's in it, so it can't be bad, oh right? God, I forgot. Jesus. <laughs> it seems impossible to be good. I don't think it's but possible. But Robin Wright is in it. Yeah. They have all the... It seems like they put together all the best possible people that you can imagine for it. But Yeah. But it just... It seems impossible to actually... It's so weird, you know, I feel like there's this whole sort of generation now of people who are who are interested in rebooting classic mm. films like this. And it's like what I was just saying about putting your own take on something you love. I mean, I understand the impulse, but it's like, but are we really... At a commercial level, it seems crazy. But the guy, um, what's his name now? I'm blanking. The director. Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Um, I feel like he... It just, why would you sign up to do that? Like, <laughs> yeah. if it, 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 Hubris. He's, he's a real... Hubris. He's an artist, though. He's someone mm-hmm. who's actually made some great films that are unique and like original independent yeah. type films. And why would you sign up to do a film that you're sure is not going to be as good or, or it can't be. It just must like be so tempting possible. to want to play in that world though, I guess so. you know, and I hate to use the word play, but it's true. I think if I got to like, you know, set scenes in, in that atmosphere and, and have that art direction, like how would it be? It's fun. It's probably so fun. Yeah. It's always so fun. Well, it's probably like jamming with your favorite, you know, musician or mm, something. That's yeah. true. I know, yuck, all across, <laughs> yuck. I mean, I I agree, yuck. But you know, I get I get why people would want to do it. It just seems like it's weird. Like, why can't we just tell people to watch the original movie? I mean, like, just tell younger people to watch that movie, re-release it if we need to. If you guys made a science fiction movie, what it, what would it be about? Oh, what boy. would it be like? Um, we talk about this all the time. Yeah, I mean, I probably forget. have like an iPhone, you know, notes list of sci-fi movie concepts that we've brainstormed over the years. I we actually we were just talking the other day about how one of my life dreams is to is to adapt this um, classic James Tiptree short story oh, to a film. Yeah. James Tiptree was this um, woman science fiction writer from the 
fifties, six, she started writing like the late forties and then through to the seventies. And she, her name was Alice Sheldon, but she wrote under a male pseudonym mm-hmm. forever. And she became like this really celebrated writer and nobody really knew who she was because they all thought she was a guy. And they're all like, she writes like a man. It has to, you know, like, you know, it's Tiptree's a, a real man's man, you know, like everyone was always talking about how masculine James Tiptree was. And she made up this whole backstory about how she was CIA. So nobody would ask her, you know, to show up to events and stuff. But eventually it came out that she was a woman. And after that, she was like, could never really write again hmm. um, because of like this pressure about who people thought she was. Anyway, oh, really? she wrote this amazing story in the 60s called Houston, Do You Read? About a group of ast- male astronauts from like, you know, the space age who get like shot off around the sun on an exploratory mission. And then something happens, they get caught in a black hole and they come out in the future and they have no idea where they are. But like all of civilization has like pretty much died out except for like 700 women are left mm-hmm. and they run a spa- their own space program and they sort of pick up these astronauts and try to help them understand the future. And it's just like this amazing, you know, like contained environment where men from the 1960s are up against like women of the year 3000 trying to understand each other and nobody can make heads or tails of it. I think it would make a really good movie. So that's the movie I right want to make. It'd be perfect. But, you know. Some original ideas? Some original ideas? We had like a cartoon idea about aliens who came to Earth who were just assholes. Yeah. <laughs> like what kind of assholes like, do you mean? <laughs> like classic Hollywood assholes, bureaucratic like assholes at every level, every kind of asshole. Yeah, like they weren't... They're weren't. Uh, they not coming to Earth to like destroy it no, or take over. They're just going to no. be assholes. Although they do feed uh, and drink <laughs> on all of our rarest uh, resources. Yeah, yeah, like they snort all our rarest minerals like just for kicks, you know, yeah. and destroy it and like make them useless to us. Yeah, but they're just dicks. They just boss us around. Yeah, and we have to we we have to work for them. But there's no like murderous relationship. It's just that they're terrible. Does humanity <laughs> prevail in the end somehow? I don't. Using I don't, our, we, I don't think we far. got to that. Yeah, <laughs> this was just like a driving conversation. We I just had, think that we, we like the idea of aliens or assholes. <laughs> yeah. How did science and science fiction become like such a big part of your lives and your band and everything? For me, it's got to be through the video store. Really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I've always been really interested in science fiction. I read a lot of science fiction. I I edit science fiction for Vice. Um, I've done a lot of like dabbling in that world of just publishing and editing science fiction, other people's writing. I just think it's the most compelling way to understand the world. It's mm. like everyone's got a worldview or like a thing that works for them, you know, an ideology. I think science fiction is, is as close to, as I've ever gotten to an ideology because it's just like a tool that you can use in so many different ways to understand reality, like just by essentially like removing and adding variables and seeing what happens. It's like almost like a modeling system in a way. Like you can just change something fundamental about reality. Like, oh, okay, like all the men died, or for example, hypothetically. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, what happens then? And what does that tell us about the way the world actually is now? And how can we take that inference and, and apply it to our daily lives? I just think you can do that with anything, you know? And I think that's really, you know, as a metric, that's really compelling. And it's like, it's something that you know, trickles down into our music and into everything that we do because, you know, we talk about this stuff a lot and we're uh, interested in the world and in technology and everything we do kind of mushes together. So it all ends up with like a little piece of that in it, that spirit. I don't necessarily think that our art is science fictional in nature, but I think it has that attitude or that stance. Yeah, maybe one of the most science fiction-y songs is I thought the future would be cooler. Yeah, and that's just about the present. Yeah. But that's all science that's fiction the- is. Right. Boom. That's why all the William Gibson books since like 1989 have all taken place in the present day because the world is weird enough. 
but are do you consider yourself uh, an optimist or yourselves optimists? I'm an eternal optimist. Yeah, I think sure. it's funny. But we also, have... I'm very negative. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, we... Sorry. <laughs> what is it? Cynical <laughs> optimism or something? Something like that. It's like, I believe that fundamentally people are good. And I believe that the fundamental narrative of history is towards progress. Mm. You know, like in whatever way you want to define that. Just like tech survival of the species and like survival of the planet. Like the larger arc mm. is positive And most people mean well, but there's so much granular shit in the day-to-day that's awful that I don't necessarily expect the best from people either. Was that fair to say? That's what I think anyway. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that all the way. I think my outlook is slightly more negative. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) I don't know if I think that humanity's best interest is always shaping the arc of history. (laughs) But don't you think we just get a little bit bit better cumulatively in every generation? I mean, I think, yeah, a good a good portion of people, but I don't know if the majority of people are thinking that way. You know, it's funny. After this election, we've played a handful of shows in the new world, you know, like post-Trump reality. And like we have all these songs that are so mm. bleak, you know, about like how we thought the future would be cooler, about how the earth is on fire. Like, <laughs> right. Um, and it feels so weird to perform them because it feels like... I don't necessarily... It's too, real. <laughs> it's too real. And it's not what I meant, you know? Right. Like it's not exactly what I meant those songs are always written in a spirit of kind of like defiance and critique of the world, but never the sense of like things being so doom and gloom. But now it certainly feels that way. I call myself an optimistic nihilist. There's actually a (laughs) quote from Kubrick that is probably one of my favorite quotes. And I forget exactly how it goes, but it's like the scariest thing about the universe is it doesn't care. Yeah. Um, And the only thing that we can do is supply our own light is how he says it. And it's just like, that's how I feel all the time. Basically, I don't think that humans have anything interesting or special about them. (laughs) I mean, they do to some extent, but not, it's just a weird thing that happened Mm -hmm. and the universe doesn't care. And that is so depressing when you actually think about it, that the only way to fight it is just, well, if nothing matters, then let's have fun. (laughs) Totally. That's actually a central tenet of the Yacht Bible, which was a book that we published some years ago. I have to read that. The Secret Teachings of the Mystery Lights. Like the indifference of the universe shouldn't be something to depress you. It should actually just like, it should be liberating because it means that A, like if the universe is both indifferent and infinite, then every every single person is like theoretically at the center of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like every single person is the center of the universe. Uh, But that doesn't mean anything. So you can just make whatever art you want to make as long as you, you know, as long as you're kind which is a personal decision, but you know, it's a liberating thing, I think. Are you guys working on anything post-election that, that is inspired by that? What, <laughs> what, is, what does art look like for you guys these days? Um, yeah, yes, I think so. It's, I mean, it's hard not to be in conversation with the world. I mean, we've always, we've always been that way. I made a terrible product that I don't know if we should get into. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're so ashamed even while you're setting it up. It's now we have to talk it's about it. It's one of my first yeah. like real deal failures. So mm. yeah, yeah, let's go into it. Okay. I made a, a uh, photorealistic full color Donald Trump urinal screen for men's bathrooms. And what? why are you so embarrassed about it? It's a huge failure. It is a, a B2B product. I have no idea how to sell to businesses. <laughs> okay. I tried to do it um, anonymously at first. Mm. And he also sort of framed it, which I think was a great marketing strategy, framed it as sort of a, a tool for protest in that, well, first of all, like the f- sales of it were for charity. Yeah. Second of all, you were, you were supposed to like bring it into men's bathrooms and reverse shoplift it into spaces that you would have, mm-hmm. that might be like pro-Trump spaces, you know, like Home Depot bathrooms. And Describe what it looks like. 
Oh yeah. Okay. So I uh, took uh, I took maybe a hundred images of Donald Trump's face, which was such an unfun experience going, yeah, finding like royalty free public domain images of Donald Trump's face. And I made a composite of just like the most horrific uh, <laughs> face that I could. And then mm. I added some very realistic uh, water droplets all over his face. So he, he looks very wet. His mouth is open. Uh, his uh, yeah, his eyes are, his eyes are shocked uh, and it's very orange. And yeah, so it just looks like you're you're peeing directly onto Donald Trump into his mouth. You apply this around the whole. How does it even so, work? <laughs> it's like a screw. Like I, I don't know men's like urinals for. It's like it, one no, of those no, no, little it's, mats. It's directly printed onto it. Onto oh, okay. it. Yeah. So it's a, yeah. There's there's a couple different urinal products which I've learned oh, after it's an actual urinal. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a mat that goes no, in. It's the not. Urinal. It's not oh, a okay, urinal. Okay, okay. Yeah. It's a it's a That's scented mat that is. It's, I get it now. Yeah. So there's usually like hockey pucks. That's like one style of urinal cake. Got it. And then there's also mats, which are usually just like a single color or just white by default. And they are uh, perforated. They have giant holes sure. so the pee can flow through. And they're perfumed. Yeah. So I had a choice the best of- the Chinese ooh. factories can offer. Yeah. I had a choice of cherry or lemon and I went with lemon mm. and they smell so bad. And now I have 3,000 of them in our garage. <laughs> well, <laughs> like 2,997 or something. Yeah. A little better than that. But yeah. Yes, essentially. So yes. that so that is a direct influence, I guess. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have this long history yeah. of like trying to create products or objects you get a or closer, closer mm-hmm. to the mic. Yeah, yeah, you're a little far away. Well, okay, fine. There you go. Oh, so much better. That like move with the news cycle in some way, or we just like making things, and uh-huh. we like to make jokes and see how far they can go. Yes, yeah, I guess that's a better way. of Our most it. successful product was a laptop sleeve that we made in 2008, directly after Steve Jobs introduced the first MacBook Air. Yeah. So to show it's like, yeah, it's it's weight and it's thinness. He pulled it out of a standard right. manila envelope. So we made a laptop sleeve that looked like a manila envelope. And that was a joke. We made like a, a website and took quote unquote pre-sales the night after the keynote, not expecting anyone to buy any of them and not having a, a product at all. We just like Photoshopped something together. And then we sold a thousand and every tech blog treated it seriously and, and wrote about it. So then we had to cobble together the real thing and make a partnership with a Chinese factory because no one in America could make them in time. Anyway, yeah, so this is the this is taking that same spirit, which we've applied to tons of other things before, uh, small and big jokes. Um, <laughs> and yeah, this is the first real failure that's that. not so bad of no, a track record. Yeah. You're going to have a couple that don't work. I don't mind it. I like it. Everything like this, yeah. Any kind of learning experience like this is so great. They always say failure is important. All those guys always say. All those guys. All those guys, they always say it's good to fail. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we're we're making music and stuff that's, that is in relation to this this world that we live in. I just finished a book that's like a feminist internet book. So I feel like it's going off into the world to fight the good fight. And yeah, I that's saw what that, we'll I always saw, do. Um, I forget what it's called, this organization of cyber feminists that you're a part of. Yeah, and Deep Lab. What, so what's this book about? What is the... Um, it's like, a, I mean, I, t- I presume that you have read one of the many sort of like Garage to Riches Silicon Valley books about, you know, Apple and Microsoft and all all those things Walter that everyone that, the innovators yeah mm. like ever, that are canonical and sort of our sure. understanding of the history of the development of technology it's kind of one of those books except for it like sort of explicitly excludes or you know largely excludes men and just gives privilege to women's stories not in like a polemic kind of way just in a sort of writing the record kind of way there's lots of really great stories that are as fun and interesting as 
um, you know, all those all those stories that we love that involve the lives of women and like the involvement of women at sort of key early points of various right. technological developments, like the history of programming itself is something that was essentially designed by women who were yeah. working as operators. And the same can be said for hypertext and web communities and a lot of things that we would sort of not necessarily associate uh, with female development is actually sort of deeply intrinsically in- engaged with the lives of women and the work of women. So it's that. You know, I'm looking forward to just getting like doxxed in a year when it comes out or whatever it is that happens to people that talk about these things publicly. But um, I'm really proud of it. And I got to interview so many amazing people in the process of writing it. So it's, for me, it was like just writing a book is the ultimate hack because you just get to talk to all your heroes. So you have an excuse to talk to all your heroes. I, I'm sure podcasting that's is kind what, of the same. It's, it's yeah. like, can I tell you on the phone and talk to you for two hours about your cool stuff that you did in the 70s and 80s? Like, that's all I want. To do, I think that I mean the names that come to mind would be like Ada Lovelace or like oh, some sure, of those people, yeah. and then I forget the names of you know. There's those classic photos of the women who built like the first supercomputers that you know wiring things together. I remember those are really awesome public domain photos. Like I spent a lot of like actual years like digging through <laughs> Library of Congress imagery and stuff and. Uh, uh, you know, finding cool images, and those were some of the best. Like, there's a whole collection of that. I'll have to find it. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, but like the development of early computers, and it was yeah, all women. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of that happened during World War II when men were at the front. So, I mean, by necessity, but also, but because women were excellent, turned out to be excellent at programming. Um, you see a lot of women. What are in those the spaces. other people that you talk to? Or, well, I mean, this this it's a yeah. long history, but it's and it starts with like what you're talking about. The sort of I mean, it starts with Ada Lovelace always, but then you know it goes into people like Grace Hopper and the NEX six who were developing you know computer hardware and programming in the in the 40s and 50s, and then skips a little bit to early web development. So one thing I, I think is really interesting that I've been working on with this book that I haven't really seen in other books is how intrinsic women were to the development of hypertext. Mm. So we think of like hypertext as being something that part of the web and is like intrinsic to the web like you know it's a hypertext markup language but before the web came along like the idea of linking ideas together through like a corpus of information to make meaning out of data is something that has like a long scholarly history like 10-15 years of, of like development both on the academic and on um, sort of like the tech corporate side and basically every major hypertext project was architected by women I don't really know why I think probably because like programming um, it was something that didn't really have a clear definition at a, that point in its development. Like it didn't have a canon. It didn't have like established norms. It, didn't, it wasn't like professionalized or really thought of as a kind of engineering. And so, and it was like less hardcore than like traditional computer programming. And so people who were interested in the humanities and who were interested in learning and, and knowledge and information and information management could get in and, um, and, and do interesting work. And so like women developed a lot of like the blinking protocols that we use on the web today. Just the web came along and was like free, uh, you know, universally networked and like so radically dumbed down that everyone in the hypertext community was like, this is never going to work. But of course it did because sometimes simplicity goes. And that's like a really interesting lesson. I think like the simplest things, even when they seem like stupid compared to academics who've been studying the field forever, I mean, I guess that's what the the principle of disruption is. But sometimes when disruptive technologies come along, they replace, you know, like decades of really thoughtful work on a subject that there's problems with the web now that like have were solved in 1982 by female developers and engineers who were just thinking about how to link differently. Like the fact that like... Link differently. Link different. <laughs> the fact that like every link right. breaks, for example, like within yeah, nine years, rot, yeah. like I've, most links are gone. And so that was something that like was 
that's mm. fundamental to the web. Like those four oh fours are just part of using the web. But um it's amazing. You know, that, that isn't that, necessarily like the way it had to be. But HTML is still around like 30 years later or whatever. It's it's kind of amazing. So much of technology yeah. we're used to seeing that change so quickly, but it's still the basic like fundamental assumption of Yeah, totally. It's a building block. But don't you wish that you could just like create hyper? I, I don't know. I love like Wikipedia for that reason because I yeah. feel like it's one of the last places Everything. where you can really go on like a, an intellectual journey, connecting like all kinds of weird stuff, and end up somewhere so far away from where you started. I but love most that. of the web is like these recursive little bubbles where you can't. I mean, that's a common complaint these days. But you can't really like trip across the infosphere quite as well <laughs> as you could back back in the day. Maybe I've been for the past eight years. I've been writing a blog for myself. It's <laughs> only, it's completely private, and mm-hmm. it's a but it's a blog, and it has links to everything. It's like my own diary weird wiki. <laughs> yeah, it's I like, love that. I've thought like I need to have like a dead man switch. You know, when I die, like it'll all go public, and mm-hmm. people can browse that stuff. But it started because I wanted to write a blog, and then I just always would get like writer's block and write like half of a blog post and then just give up on it. And so then I just kept doing it forever. And I was like, ah, it's fine. And I had just all these like half formed ideas and then linking <laughs> them together. And now that it's been a while, it's like my own little internet. You um, just keep blogging forever and yeah. you'll make an internet as big as the internet you left behind. <laughs> it's like <laughs> monkeys trying to write Shakespeare or something. I don't know about that, but maybe. You'll make the whole internet. I mean, you know, if you live long yeah. enough. Maybe. 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 With the, it's a worthy quest. With where the internet is going and, and technology, that maybe we'll be the first generation to live forever. We were joking the other day about like when Facebook becomes the entire internet, someone's going to have to make a Facebook for Facebook. Oh, right. Like inside <laughs> Facebook. I think that might already be happening. I, I think know. that's what Messenger is actually. That's what our friend's new dating service kind of is too. <laughs> yeah. It's a we have a friend. What's it called? Uh, I think it's called Love Funnel. Our, oh, yeah, we have Love this, Funnel. One of our best friends in the world is this guy, Mike Merrill, who's a, the world's first publicly traded person. He's mm. sort of an internet celebrity and he's been selling shares of himself since 2008 and he has, makes like lets his shareholders make life decisions for him. There was like a wired story about him and he's been on, he, he was, was on Cheddar He's done yesterday. the circuit. He was on Cheddar yesterday. <laughs> um, but he has this like new cockamamie scheme for online dating, which is basically just like buying Facebook ads. It's huh. all it is. He's just like, he's one of those people who hey, got... Hey, 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 he's going to listen to this and you're really going to break his heart if that's what you well, say. He knows all that's it what I think. <laughs> it's a complicated way of putting yourself in front oh, of others okay. using Facebook ads so to tar- target yes, your exact... You target people. You, yeah, yeah. But you, target, you target it's, your friends. Ge- I mean, it's kind of like sinister genius. I think I resent it because I feel like it's it monetizes human interaction, but I guess we're already operating within that ecosystem. It makes, yeah. it makes so much sense and yet it's so weird as well like who would <laughs> is there a person who's going to be like oh yeah that's how I met my husband or who something. knows I have a friend who he's trying to convince to be the first but <laughs> so not, we'll it hasn't happened yet um, yeah but I love think funnel love funnel he's out. calling it love funnel <laughs> I think that's what we were talking about Facebook for Facebook yeah. you're right like, he yeah, was yeah, like yeah. you know you get to meet people I was like oh you mean Facebook <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could, you don't meet people on Facebook anymore anyway. So no, really... who did you ever meet people well, on Facebook? Well, maybe not. No, Twitter is more of a place where I feel like I met Twitter's people. like the last place where you can, that feels like the old internet too. I Wikipedia and Twitter. I get tons and tons of just stranger friend requests every, yeah, every so often. I well, mean, every week, a, every week. Well, you're a minor celebrity. You're a minor celebrity. I, minor, minor, <laughs> minor. But yeah, I, I accept everyone. And so it really fucks with my feed. Mm. They don't know how to target me. It's great. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's great. But then you never see anything that your friends actually post. Or do you? I think I still do because you can also unfollow strangers too. Ugh, I hate that we're talking about Facebook. Yeah, let's get out of but here. Write, writing, <laughs> writing seems to be another, you've got so many tangential things that are all happening at the same time. It fascinates me. I <laughs> came across your article about 
peak shark dick. <laughs> yes. Because, oh, because I'm, I'm, an industri- I'm an industrial designer. It is, so everything about like shore scale of durometer is like completely up my alley. Um, oh my God, ex- yes. Explain what that is. Oh, thank you for caring Let's about talk that. About that's that. like when I, I spent that's way my, too long working on that article. It's, uh, it's very good. It's basically based on the, an observation that a friend of ours, actually our bandmate, made about his vape pen, which was that it like felt like a shark dick. And by that he meant like it was coated with this kind of like rubbery, grippy yeah. silicone, which there's like not really a good adjective for it. But whenever you say shark dick, people kind of understand. It's like, it's kind of rubbery, but not rubbery. It's like got grip to it. And it's like matte. Yeah. And there's various mm-hmm. grades of it. And some things are more shark dicky than others. But the world has become very, like all of our peripherals are super shark dicky. It's cool to know that there's a, there's language around that. I was trying to identify like the companies that were responsible for creating shark dick. On the technical level, I love looking behind the veil, that stuff. But it's also just about, I think, the fact that, and this is maybe like a really basic observation, but just the fact that, you know, our technology is becoming like more and more, you know, part of Human, us, on us, yeah. on our bodies, handheld all the time, designed to be touched, designed to be lived with in a really in- intimate way, as opposed to like a hi-fi from the 1970s, which would be like very polished and you press the buttons like three times a week, you know. Um, so it's of course, closest, like the touchability is it, crucial. It's the closest mass manufactured material that we have that feels remotely close to like skin yeah mm-hmm. but it doesn't it, it feels no. weird it feels it's weird it's like uncanny valley but it's our it's our technology's way of having skin for but the time being for yeah eventually we're gonna get to a point with like bioengineering where you, you'll just be able to manufacture like actual skin for your device <laughs> so oh, like, then you start getting into like existence territory yeah. which is problematic in you'll some have like an f- iphone made out of skin like, but don't yeah. you, the thing is i think that like I don't think that's the way it's going to no, go. I think don't. I think Shark Dick exists in this place in between where it doesn't get too uncanny valley because once it gets mm. too skin like, then it's really? like ooh. But don't you think? No, really, I you want your phone I, to feel like a human arm? No, but no, but <laughs> I think because that's think, what you're saying. No, what I'm saying is like if you if you like leather on a thing, that's mm. real skin. I True. mean, but in the future, when the future gets cool, we'll be able to make leather without having having to kill animals. I like the idea of digital leather or like smart leather. But actual leather, not not plastic, a a material that has been biologically oh, you mean like grown leather? Yeah, like grown leather. Oh, yeah, sure. Grown. I'm all for it. Yeah. I just think that like uh in the near in the nearer term, I don't want I think I want there to be like some kind of dividing line between What if okay. me and my me and my tech? Yeah, but what if what if we got to the point where manufacturing could completely merge with biology and you could have Okay. See exactly. He, he's show- Sarah's iPhone case that she oh, made. John it's is showing made- a picture of our friend's iPhone case. So it just looks, looks like, like a human ear. Yeah, Google, looks Google, shockingly Google. like a human ear. Hey, listeners, Google ear iPhone case. Uh, Sarah Sitkin. It looks like those horrible experiments when they put like an ear on a mouse or whatever. Yeah, yes, totally. It's like that, but for a phone. Yeah. But yeah. but what if your phone instead of having to plug it into the wall had like photosynthesis or something like that? You know, like I'm all for that. That's great. Mm-hmm. I love like a biological technological future. I I would love to have smart plants. Mm. You know, plants that could tell me the weather. What? <laughs> Just kidding. That's what plants already do. <laughs> the future is already here. So what? So how do you guys divide your time? It's that you. We've got products. We've got writing. Like music. We didn't even talk about five every day. Mm-hmm. There's the art project, the yeah. trifor- triforium. <laughs> what, what's going on with all these different things? I mean, it's really, it's like a triage every day. Mm. You know, we have, we always say yes to projects and sometimes there'll be like a lull between projects and we're like, oh, we need something else. So we'll make something else up to do and then that'll pick up and then we'll be stuck juggling one more thing. That's usually how it works. 
But, you know, every day, whatever's the most pressing, that's what we work on. Yeah, I can't imagine living any other way. And when people always ask us, like, how do you sleep? I I don't know. How we do actually I chill out, like, a lot. I feel yeah. like we yeah. have a lot of leisure time. I we mean, that's the way. We must be great at time management, and we just don't realize it. But I don't feel overworked, and I feel like, yeah, we don't have enough stuff. We, there, there are more things we could do right now. I think we just we tend to design. What are you people doing? <laughs> we, de- we tend <laughs> to design projects <laughs> that question. can exist on a sort of like more spread out kind of time scale. Like we don't start businesses that need nine to five customer support right. and stuff. Like we'll make something and it'll either be like sort of a one-off thing that's designed for a short period of time, like a sort of time-based sort of sensitive product or something that we decide will go out of stock and we don't redo again. Or something that will take a little bit of time for two years straight. Yeah, or like a, a live show or an album, like these things which are kind of ephemeral and, and come and go. Um, I mean, that's how it is when you're in music, you put out records and then you know, it's like your job is to make the record and tour the record and then, you, then it passes and you have to do the next thing, you know? So it's, it's always like that. It's just sort of adding new, new ingredients to the potion as, as, as the potion thins out every time, basically. I think it's the, it's just the question of how do you know what the heck you're going to do when you wake up in the morning, if you've got all these different things, mm-hmm. which is, I, I feel like that all the time, you know, it's like, oh, I've got these 25 different ideas. Which one should I work on today? Whichever yeah. one you're getting like irate emails about, uh-huh. that's the one. Or whichever you deal one you're with. the most excited about. Yeah. But do you feel like you're able to do that? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that we're like a model of how to do anything. And we no. have a lot of moments where we're like, what the f, f- are we doing? Because <laughs> we are feeling competent or overwhelmed. And also nothing that we've ever done makes any money. If that's <laughs> yeah. a concern. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we joke. It makes about enough this. to I mean, like for us to keep doing things, but no. Yeah. We're not good at we're not good at being business people at all. Yeah, totally. Like, for example, our app. I mean, we we mm-hmm. make things all the time that are like, we sort of, be, we design these switches into maybe like dead man switches or something yeah. into them where it's like, it can't ever be hugely mm-hmm. commercially successful because that would inherently ruin the product, like Five Every Day, our app, which is like this like very sort of loving uh, event calendar for Los Angeles. It's like five things to do in LA every day. And it's written by one of our best friends. And there's no past. And there's, there's like, no future, there's no, the there's no data. There's no like f- logging in. There's no Facebook. Like mm-hmm. it, there's, there's no like affiliates. It's just like stuff we like. And the more successful it becomes, like the more it would be impossible to keep it cool. You know, mm. we can never do really do you advertising could, because could it could theoretically never be. have people in every city doing their version or something like and that. And they'd all be losing money. Yeah. And they'd, yeah. I don't think any of them would be as good too. They have to have the right, they have to be plugged into the right kind of network. Yeah. We would just need, we just need to find like the person that yeah. we trust in New York to have cool taste about stuff. Cause it's not necessarily but they would also about like, like want to write five things every day. Yeah. It's That's not a about, lot. It's yeah. a lot. It's I, a lot of work. It's, yeah. a, it's five cool things every day. Is, yeah, it's five so many things. New I mean, it's not hard to find writing. five cool things yeah. in LA every day. That's the easy part. It's actually just like putting it into context and yeah. explaining why it's cool. Like, you know, there could be a cool gallery opening, but I think five every day would to always take the approach of like, this is the history of this gallery and this is the deal with this artist and this is its relationship to its community. And like, this is why this is cool. And this is what these people have been working on. And we look forward to seeing this from them. Like it's about really understanding the community. I'm going to ruin the flow of the conversation for a second. Do you remember someone had this concept about uh, virtual reality in, in terms of like writing your experience, making you believe that your experience is different if it's even just like a banal experience of going to the grocery store? And we're like, oh yeah, that's what five every day is. But do you remember what they called it? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh. Are you talking about narr- narrative reality? Yes, narrative That's a reality. Ross Goodwin thing. Right. Yes. That's describe like using... That okay. <laughs> you, uh, you can, you can describe it. I don't know if I can. I can really describe it. I mean, it's the, Ross Goodwin is this really super smart uh, like AI guy. He wrote, the, he wrote the algorithms that wrote the script for that 
short film that was written mm. by a bot called Sunspring oh, with um, right. yeah. Thomas Middleditch, which is yeah. like one of the most interesting pieces of I art. I've seen that, but I know, yeah, so I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I got a lot of press. Um, and he did a follow-up recently as well. But he like, he thinks about virtual reality and augmented reality and then this third thing, like narrated reality, which is like designing systems that can describe the world to you as a way of like memorializing your experience that isn't necessarily going to be like completely accurate, but it's going to give you like a reading of something that you saw or lived. Is and that that's, fair? Yeah, that's how I think of five every day. So instead of just like being like, oh, this is a grocery store, this is everything that's in the grocery store, we just describe like why the grocery store matters, its mm. historical context and like the cool, weird things about it. Yeah, it's it's one thing to write about like hip things that are happening in town, but for us, Los Angeles is like such a fascinating city and it's not necessarily just about like who's coming through, but like what's here and what's always been here, you know? You have a song called L.A plays itself yes which is is it named after the movie or it's, is it related to the movie there's uh, two movies there's two movies really i'm thinking of the documentary well yeah, los, los angeles plays itself yes. the tom anderson documentary y- yes i mean there's references to that movie in the song and the music video is kind of an explicit reference to oh i haven't uh, his seen film. the music video oh the music it. video is one of my favorite things we've ever made it's like you know those yellow production location signs you mm-hmm. see around oh, la yeah. So we made. I don't think people outside of LA know what we're talking about. Okay, so yeah. if you live in Los Angeles, there's or always movies. Being we saw someone in Mexico recently for Better Call Saul. Oh, that's funny. That's they're, true. Yeah, they pop up. And the, name, and the words on them are always so weird. Yeah, they're code. Yeah, they're cryptic. So they're yeah. like these yellow corrugated plastic signs that one company makes, JCL Barricade, mm. who actually just relocated from uh, the Arts District to like somewhere really far away. Probably got priced out. Mm. Um, <laughs> but they've been making the same these signs for the for the industry for the film industry for years decades and they're just like these plastic signs that production people will put up near base camp or near they're yellow shooting and they have a giant black arrow and they have the production uh, company's name usually it's like yeah it's some kind of code word and it's both upside down uh, and right side up so you can spin the sign either way to make the arrow yeah point to and they just put them up with like bailing go. wire wherever you know and it's one of those things where if you live in LA you just see it all the time and you're like what is that a code for you know yeah. like what movie are they filming or what commercial are they making so we we uh, worked with JCL Barricade. And we made <laughs> wonderful people. Oh my God. We made a sign for every word of the song, LA oh, Place wow. Itself. Yeah. And then we put them in sequential order along st- streets in Los Angeles and then mm. filmed the entire video. It's like basically it's, it's, a, li- it's a lyric video, essentially. So it's yeah. driving through LA and different parts of LA, tri- catching these signs on the beat. Um, and which, of course, is, you know, an homage to Tom Anderson's wonderful Los Angeles Plays Itself, which is about L.A. sort of performing itself in film and TV. But there's also an L.A. Plays Itself. By Fred Halstead. By Fred Halstead, which is a porno film. A gay mm. porno film. A gay from, porno film from the 1970s. Yes, that one's not on Netflix, I'm assuming. I don't no. think so, but it's pre, it predates Los Angeles Plays Itself. You can itself. find a torrent if you like. And it's like, I've no, we haven't seen it. No, I have. You have? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like an art, an art gay porn from the 70s, but also mm. in Los Angeles. Yeah, it took me a couple tries to really get through the documentary. Oh, it's so good. It's, it's, so good it's, like, do, it's like four hours long or something. You have to see it at the, in a theater. We saw it at Sony really? Family, which like made it so we couldn't uh, leave, you know? There's yeah. like the accountability of, of the rest of the audience. It is so long. It is, yeah. and the narration is very dry. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's, it's worth it. It's super academic. It's worth it. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I think it's it's on Netflix now, which is pretty cool. It yeah. took like, I think it took decades to clear the rights for really? all the film yeah. usages, yeah. which is why it's been taking so, many so long. I love that movie. It has, uh, you know, when I moved to LA, um, I just came here for school and I thought, you know, I, I didn't think I would stick around. Like LA doesn't, didn't have like the best reputation in my (laughs) mind. Mm -hmm. And then I went to school for industrial design and I was, one of the school assignments was to go do an architectural tour, um, in downtown 
And I right around here uh, went to like the theater district and saw all these art deco buildings. Mm -hmm. And they're all, most of them are not even being used. I mean, now they're like movie locations and all this kind of stuff per the movie. But um, it totally gave me a huge appreciation for the architecture of Los Angeles a lot of this stuff is is like hidden in plain sight. It's so weird. Yeah, or was knocked down. I mean, yeah. there was a ton of amazing architecture downtown before they built Bunker Hill. Like, right. you know, these like winding hills of old Victorian buildings and stuff and the cable car and all that. I mean, it's, what's interesting about LA for me is like things, because of the way that it moves laterally, like it's not a city with a real urban growth boundary and it doesn't right. really build up very much until recently. So it's like whenever you wanted to just move on, like people wouldn't necessarily knock things down. They would just move something. They well, would just like build somewhere else. That's how downtown, like downtown yeah. is all vertical, <laughs> but then people were like, wait a minute, why are we doing this? We have so much space. Like, let's just go yeah. west yeah. and build. You but know. It, it's it like accidentally preserves things sometimes, not always, but sometimes. And yeah. so... You know, things end up just like taking on these lives, like those old movie houses that are now like right. Korean super churches and like swap meets and other thing. And sometimes movie theaters and sometimes they're movie theaters that live like three different lives, like for different cultural usages. And now they're back to being movie theaters. Yeah, but yeah. now they're like movie theater themed movie theaters, right. like this like <laughs> disgusting sort of meta thing that we all, our generation always does to the past, which I find distasteful, but also is the only way that things are preserved, like Clifton's, for example. But yeah, it's so weird. There's like so much, there's so much existing and simultaneously. It's like 10 parallel dimensions at once in every building in LA. That's what I find so fascinating about it. But neither of you grew up here? No. Nope. Both in Portland or is that right? Yeah. yeah. Short story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We both grew For up. For the most part. Yeah. In Oregon. <laughs> short story. <laughs> short story. The first short story. <laughs> but then, okay. So how, how did you learn to appreciate Los Angeles? I went to college here. Mm. as well and fell in love with it then i i went to school i went to occidental college ah my sister at, went there really mm -hmm. in the early 2000s and lived in highland park in 2002 and it's like i loved i loved it so much like i just loved yeah being part of a neighborhood in a city i, I mean we're I'm coming from portland like there's no cultural diversity whatsoever and if there is it's like being aggressively forced out so to like just live in a city where I was in the center of the world for once, like was life changingly great for me. And like, I can't imagine anything else now. Um, and then I convinced Jonna to move back to LA with me uh, six years ago. And we've been here for six years, oh, but wow. like he's been, you know, Jonna's been in bands. Yeah. I started coming here when I was a teenager playing in punk bands. And so I had always loved Los Angeles, but I was completely afraid of it. And I never thought I would get to live here. I thought that it was uh, above me. What's the, what's the deal with Marfa? Oh, oh Marfa. Marfa. We were, we were just, just there. there. <laughs> Shout out to the Agave Festival. <laughs> what, I, I, I read that it was your spiritual home. Yeah, yeah What basically. does that mean? We've recorded every record there since, two, yeah, since uh, Sea Mystery Lights. Since 2008. 2008. It's oh, amazing. It. It's another place that's changed a lot in the last 10 years, but, but yeah, I mean, on. the fundamental <laughs> DNA of it remains. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's this tiny town in the middle of like a pretty remote corner of mm. West Texas, but like a really beautiful part of the state. It's they like call it far West Texas. just north of Big Bend National Park and it's the high desert. So it's like just, you know, the sky is like, un, you know, unreal. Like it's just, it's 99% sky, 1% ground there. You know, it's just nothing but sky. And um, it's a small town, really small town that was kind of rescued from the brink of losing its water rights in the early 70s, late mm -hmm. 60s by this artist, Donald Judd 
who basically like came in with a bunch of oil money and bought all these old buildings and turned them into like fine arts establishments and museums and permanent installations for his friends who all his conceptual artist friends in New York who were sick of having to move their work around. They wanted Mm. to make site specific things. And so it has this like, you know, it's still a town. Like it's always been a town. There's like a local community and there's people that work for border patrol mostly. I mean, I think it's like a huge part of the population works for border patrol out there. Um, but then there's also this like weird and longstanding like kooky art thing, like kind of like super high end art thing where people come from all over the world to see the stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it makes it like, it's kind of like the only small town living I've ever really experienced. And you live there and you have all the benefits of the small town in the sense that you have like this really micro community. Everyone's like in everyone's face all the time, but you also have like internationally recognized poets and painters coming through like every other day for residencies or for speeches, lectures or whatever. So it's like this weird combination of living in a cosmopolitan place Mm. and in a really remote, like high desert to small town. So it's living there is, I mean, I'm like, I, we both said all when you said that, cause it's like just, it's borderline spiritual for us. Like it's just such a pure place, a really beautiful place. And everyone that lives there, you know, all our oldest friends that live out there, like, they have like these rad lives and then they're just like supporting each other and and making it day by day to like try to make it work to live somewhere like that. And it's like, they have a lot of beauty. There's a lot of beauty and it's just like physically very beautiful. And, um, you know, it makes you realize like how little access we have to like real, com- real community mm-hmm. where like, you know, you're actually know your neighbor, even if they're not like you, you know, yeah. like, you know, your neighbor, the rancher, yeah. you know your neighbor, like the weird artist who's been reclusive and living there since the 70s, or you, you know kids. Like it's just like there's, everyone comes together all the time for stuff. And there's like this sort of weird like high-end arts infrastructure that supports all of it. So like the community, local community play will be put on in this like fabulous theater and all these like world-class directors and artists will like help because they just happen to live in town, you know? Yeah. It's very magical. I had a few, I had an experience sort of like that where I lived, going back to Holland, I lived there for like six months Ooh, in cool. a small town called Delft, um, which of is... Of the pottery. Yeah, of the pottery fame. And Vermeer is like well known as like the, the, one of the big artists that came from there. And I had a very strange like metaphysical connection to Vermeer for that period of time. There was like a three-year stretch where Vermeer was like a major component of my life for some reason (laughs) I don't know it it was completely coincidental and then I was coming right out of college um, when I studied I studied biology before I went back to school for industrial design and um, I was very into Vermeer or, or like Vermeer was coming into my life and then I was trying to get an internship at a design agency and like 50 design all the best studios in America said no you can't and so I decided to go back to Europe because my I grew up there and my parents lived there um, and find a job over there. And the only place, one of my favorite places was in Delft, like his birthplace. And I was like, I got to go there. <sighs> and and then I lived there for like six months and it there was like one of everything. There. Yeah. And so you would just, it, and every, everything happens around the bicycle as like the unit of a measure there. Um, so whatever groceries I could fit on my bicycle was what I eight for like two days basically like that's my my fridge was tiny this Mm -hmm. was like a really really tiny super narrow dutch house and i would just see the same people all the time like the same you know guy with the olive oil shop and the butcher and Mm -hmm. the yeah and it's something that 
it's rare to find that nowadays. Everything kind of feels the same, sort of. Yeah, uh, and it's real life. It's, it's yeah. It's People hard. forget about how important that is, but yeah. like it's so vital. Human beings. <laughs> yeah, day to day interactions with people that aren't like people that you you know are your people that you're your best friends or whatever. Just people, other people that are other than you. You know, it's so it's so crucial. I love the Netherlands. Yeah, we always say that. They Dutch we ate much. Gun to our heads if we had to live anywhere else outside of the country. I would live in Amsterdam. I love it. Yeah, it's it is one of the best cities. It's so great, and the the bicycle culture over there is it's just so awesome. Like the whole country is designed around that, and yeah. it's awesome. Well, it's, it is very flat to give it to be fair. Well, it's flat, but there's other places that are flat. It's also you know the the laws are set up to protect cyclists. Yeah. Like if you're a cyclist and you run into a car there, it's always the car's fault. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, and then just like complicated intersections and all that stuff are like designed for bicycles. Like I remember when I would go to work, there was this one spot where it was like seven different streets coming together. So there are all these like lanes going in different directions and each of them had a separate <laughs> little lane for the bicycles to go. And a lot of streets have more bicycle lane space than car space. Anyway, it's great. That's awesome. It's I, I hear Denmark is like that too, and I need to go check. Yeah, it out. Denmark is like great. Yeah, I never feel like more of a total idiot than when I'm accidentally walking in the bike lane in Amsterdam. Ooh. You know, that's like <laughs> that's they wrong. hate you for that. I know, but it's really hard to tell if you're as an American, you go in there and it's like it's just a low flat lane next to the road. It feels yeah. like sidewalk. You know, Amsterdam it's a big is, culture shock. I remember driving in Amsterdam, Ooh, and it was it's like literally the craziest place to yeah. drive. Everything is one way streets because there's canals. You feel like you're going to fall in a canal at any moment. There's high people, tourists, like just yeah. walking in packs. There's bicycles. And then there's like this tram mm-hmm. thing uh-huh. going where it's just very it's, confusing. It's we, total chaos. We once started a tour in Amsterdam and we had a, a driver come from oh, the gosh. Czech Republic. And she smashed the entire back window of our uh, Mercedes Sprinter van. Like on the first day. On the very first day, just making like a tight turn from a canal to a restaurant. And it was so sad. She took it in stride. But I, I want to touch on the so one of your recent projects mm-hmm. yeah. with the art. Yes. What, what's going on with this Triforium? Am I... Triforium, yeah, yeah, that's Triforium. what I got it. Yeah. I didn't even know about that. That's what and everyone then, says. And then... I feel like I should. I went to the website and it was, I've been fascinated with this photographer, Julius Schulman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He recently. shot the iconic mm-hmm. Triforium picture. And and I saw your faces like on an, a local newspaper recently. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we were on the cover of the LA Downtown News, which, yeah. you know, as like a re- everyday consumer, you might not think that's a big deal, but that newspaper is in the lobby of every single like a city building. Yeah. It, it, it's every, si- it. every city worker reads it. It was kind of a you big You have deal. like a beret on or something. It's like very, like, who are these? You looked like, what's tell like us, this? Tell us what we look like. You, know, you we looked like, this, so much. The sis, like Doug's sister, you know? Oh. Like, you looked like... Um, Oh, yes. What's yeah, her name? I forget her name, but I just recently watched like a classic Doug episode recently. It's called like Doug Goes Online, if yeah. you can imagine, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's, about, it's about the internet. And his, his sister like gets in this like... Lisa? Sh- is that her? No. Yeah, Le- maybe Lisa. She falls in love with this guy in a chat room. And she's like on this like pretentious person's chat room and she's like chatting. It's also very like on. the palace because there's little avatars, right? Yeah, let's not graphical. get into the granular okay, Lisa, Because Lisa is like, you know, or I don't even know if that's her name, but she's she's like I'm not the sure. caricature of an artist. Right, yeah. like yeah. that's how you. But like the in kind of '90s caricature <laughs> yeah. of an artist, like right. I would, I would put that caricature in the same plate as like, you know, in the '90s when like 
sun-dried tomatoes came on the scene and everyone was like, it's so European. Like uh-huh. that's how it feels like sushi yeah. Yeah. or like lattes and really big mugs, like all these sort of like exotic cosmopolitan kind of like bohemian things that are absolutely like so mundane. Right. Um, that's how I feel about that characterization so, of the arts. Not to critique your, 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 your fashion <laughs> yeah. sense, but, I what, like that, but what, what is the, um, so what is, what okay. are you guys working on? So, oh my God. Okay, so the Triforium is a six story tall, 60 ton sculpture that was the world's largest instrument when it was unveiled in 1975 in Los Angeles. Mm. And not just in musical instrument, but what the artist called polyphenoptic instrument. So this man, Joseph Young, who designed the Triforium, imagined that there would be this art form in between light mm. and music called polyphenoptics, which would be the interplay of light and music to symphonic effect. And he built this massive kind of insane looking sculpture that's ringed with uh, 1,494. Is that right? 97? No, it's 94. Okay, let's just say 1,500. Um, hand-blown glass cubes. and each Prisms, not cubes. Prisms. 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 <laughs> you know, I'm just simplifying it. And each one of them has a light bulb in it, and they're synchronized through the f- pediment of the Triforium down to a control room underneath, which has a massive refrigerator-sized 1970s computer and used to have a 79-note glass bell carillon instrument that was custom-designed for it, which was actually unfortunately cut out and sold as salvage by the city in the 70s or like early 80s, we think. Time's a little iffy on yeah, that. Yeah, timeline. But it was derided at the time. Like what? It was, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it never. It's it's a bummer all around because it, he ended up costing a lot of money, like almost a mm. million dollars in the seventies, which, as you can imagine, is a lot of money uh, by today's standards. And it was like the middle of a recession, and it was like sort of peak white flight downtown Los Angeles. So like. There was this sense from the taxpayer that like, why would you build this massive piece of public art in mm. a part of town that nobody goes to after dark because it was supposed to light up and draw people right. in. Um, so it was politically really unpopular. All the city council were like vehemently against it and like made sort of made a pariah of the artist. But and the then public loved it. Some The public loved it. Yeah. I mean, people that actually got to see it and experience it, like we hear nothing but great stories about what it was and what it did. But, you know, it's, and technology didn't really work that well. Like the computer system broke pretty quickly. The and, instrument broke pretty and quickly. And the instrument broke and had to be removed. And so it never really got to do what it was really supposed to do, which was be like a dynamic musical instrument in downtown LA. And the artist had all kinds of other crazy ideas that he wanted to implement that didn't get implemented in its first edition. So yeah, it was supposed to respond to footfall in the plaza. So if you walked up to it, it would light and make music for you. It was also supposed to have oh, wow. lasers that shoot out of the top of it that would uh, flash Los Angeles in SOS. Morse code, yeah. yeah. Um, oh yeah, sorry, Morse code. It's just like this wildly ambitious, like very kind of emblematic of the 1970s, like very utopian about the future, very like incredibly sort of confident in its design choices. <laughs> like it's part of this whole 70s mm-hmm. pedestrian walking plaza that the city is sort of trying to figure out what to do with. That is, to me feels like of a piece with like the Bonaventure in downtown LA where it's like these massive pedestrian spaces that are actually like really hard to access and like don't really make any sense yeah. because they're not actually thinking about people. It's like my very zoomed out kind of city planning. Um, so what are you guys doing with it? We're trying to restore it. <laughs> we're trying to fix it. So it never really worked and the computer's broken as amazing as it is. It so does not light up anymore. It doesn't light sound. up. It hasn't been playing music. Um, there's been like some attempts to fix it over the years. In 2006, there was a councilwoman who came in and like jerry-rigged this weird system where the employees of the Sabaros, which was like a, the pizza place across from, yeah. from the <laughs> they Triforium, had, they like, had a key would, to the control room. would come in and press play on a CD changer and like play like these weird no. Pottery yeah. Barn jazz CDs. I mean, it's just insane. So we're just 
just trying to like get like a full understanding of where we're at with the Triforium, trying to get the city engaged in it and then fix it, you know, like replace the old computer system with a new one uh-huh. that like a modern one that can actually like run programs that's off the shelf. And yeah, that's inexpensive, insane to put maintain. LEDs in it so that it doesn't burn out and then work with artists and composers and people from all around the city and the country to create and the world polyphenoptic compositions as Joseph Young, the artist would have wanted. So what did you, how did you get, clued into this whole thing and is it like a lot of politics like what is it so much politics what is it what what is it like to try and do this well first off just like you we hadn't seen it before even though we'd driven by the intersection of temple Mm -hmm. and main which is right in the shadow of city hall like hundreds of times we'd never really seen that it was there until a friend of ours made a short documentary about the triforium explaining its cool rich history we got into it we met with him and we're like let's try to do something small scale so for its 40th birthday party we had a kind of a gorilla party at the Triforium. We lit it up ourselves with LEDs that we just rented and we had DJs come and play and we had a really elaborate, beautiful birthday cake for it. And the daughters of the artist who is since deceased uh, came and we met them and they presented us with the 1979 uh, phone book of Los Angeles that featured the Triforium on the cover. They made these nice prints and gave them to us. Um, Yeah, and so we thought it would kind of end there and then we won a grant. Yeah, we applied Mm -hmm. for a grant. From LA 2050, which is like this, it's related to Good Magazine and the Gold Hearts Foundation. They do, they give a million dollars every year to projects around LA that are doing things to make LA better for the future. And so we won a bunch of money and all of a sudden that's like really helped us negotiate with the city, obviously, like we can actually have something to contribute. So now we're working with the Department of Cultural Affairs, uh, but it's really political and we don't know the first thing about how to do it. We have someone on our team who's kind of a city guy who's used to work in, for city council and he knows how things work. And I don't know what we would do without him because honestly, it's so much like you have to talk to this person and this person has to talk to this person, but this person and this person are like kind of at odds. So make sure you talk to this person first. You know, it's a oh, lot wow. of, it's amazing. It's given us like yeah. so much insight into how cities work. I mean, it's mm. really a people game, like everything, you know, like mm-hmm. figuring out who to talk to and being deferential and like respectful, but also, you know, making sure that you're clear about what you want to do because like there is a lot of bad ways that the Triforium could be managed or restored. Like there's a lot of avenues that are, there are some avenues that are smarter than others. And we're just trying to like guide yeah. the city towards what, what we think is the best thing based on our Not understanding. Sparrows, so yeah. yeah. Cause like controls. we have this, the daughters gave us all yeah. the family archives. So we've just like been going through all these documents, like reading memos from between yeah. the artists and all the people that worked on it in the seventies. Like so many people worked on it because it was a hugely technological thing and involved, you know, getting like these teams of people together to make the instrument, to make the bells, to make the glass, to make the computer. So we, we feel like we understand really well the context in which it was made and what it meant, what the artist meant to do with it. Um, we're just trying to restore his good name, basically. It, one thing is that's weird about L.A. is we don't really have like a, an iconic yes, thing. Like totally. the Hollywood yeah. sign is probably the closest thing. Right. Um, Jesse, my business partner, and I like tried to figure something out. And the one that we ended up using for a project was... Griffith Observatory, which we yeah. really mm-hmm. love, yeah, and, yeah. but I don't think it has the same like recognition worldwide. Like, if you think of big cities, you think there's always something, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge or the Empire State Building or what, or you know, whatever the Chrysler Building. But what is L.A.? Can, could we, it be the Triforium? That's what we've we, been trying. We made, we, we just made one of those T-shirts, you know, those T-shirts that are like London, Rome, yeah. Tokyo. We just did one for Los Angeles with like an outline drawing of the Triforium. 
Um, Cause yeah. it does have a unique shape. It's a weird shape. Uh, yeah. you know, some people think it's ugly. I think, you know, it's very seventies. Like it looks very seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's awesome. And I love seeing like a manifestation of a previous generation's idea of what the future would look yeah. like, you know, oh, like yeah. there's a lot of stuff like that in LA, like the theme building at LAX and the Bonaventure, like this sort of fantasy mm-hmm. of what the future would be. And it's totally off, but like there's something about the ambition that is right, I think. And I love the idea of us coming along and like being the future that the seventies wanted to have, you know, I think that's nice. But it's also very relevant, I think, to the current way that people think about places and technology kind of combining with each other. And uh, there's something about that that feels like right today. There's a lot of, I don't know, a lot of things are trying to be more experiential, for lack of a better word. Totally, Mm -hmm. totally. I mean, this is, I have a theory about how Instagram is eating the world, Yeah, <laughs> which is just that like you start oh seeing these manifestations of things that you know are, are like, they're for right. people, but they're yeah. designed to lure people in. Like there's a sign yeah. down the street from your house. Yes. It's horrible. <laughs> I hate it. I know. It's like Instagrammable for, wall I can't right over that. here. I yeah. Or like, that. I mean, now you start seeing all these like promotions and activations yeah. that are based around like, this is, this is art, but like actually just take your photo in front of it. Or like all these sort of hipster brunch places that only serve open face sandwiches I'm, because they look cooler or smoothie bowls, like the flattening of the smoothie. I'm assuming you've read uh, Baudrillard, right? Yes. In college. Okay. Yeah. Like <laughs> simulacra and simulations. Like I, my life changed after I read that uh it's just like the even just like the little segment that he used the, the Borges like do you, do you remember that like the map yeah the map becoming the, the territory the map becoming the territory is like so relevant right now where it's just like everything is becoming an iconic like an Instagrammed mm-hmm. you have the image of what your Instagrammed experience will be yeah before going to the place then you go to the place you take the Instagram photo of it and then that's what you remember totally. in the future mm-hmm. is like your the only memory that you have is now the s- square thing that you posted. Yeah, you modify your experience fundamentally. It's, I mean, we've been doing that for a long time with photography. I mean, I, I feel like I there's, guess, you know, yeah, my look, true. I think about my, my childhood, you know, photos and like there's things I don't remember, but I remember because of the photo or because of the video. So I'm glad it's there. But I think when right. like commercial entities are pivoting for that explicitly, or like artists are pivoting towards that mm. explicitly to create things. I mean, we've been joking about making an art installation that like somehow punishes people for Instagramming it. <laughs> how, does, like, how does that work? Uh, I think that's like the, the classic idea of like the best invention would be like something that can slap you through a, a screen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's a case. It's uh, okay. you, we you were joking around like um, making something where there's like a message hidden that you only see when you like take a flash photograph of uh-huh. it. Or something that has like iconography or symbols that turn out to like later than be like. Very f- racist. Ra- not racist. <laughs> okay. But like. Something that makes you look bad on the internet later. Yeah. But I don't know. It's too not it's too nasty. I had a really brilliant um cultural studies professor in college that we read Baudrillard and then we went to the Universal City Walk afterwards. Mm. And all of us were like, (laughs) Oh my god. Uh yeah, I don't know how much we can summarize or try to like even send people towards a very dense and hard to read. And also I've heard that I've only read it in in French, but because I'm French, but hey. But I heard all the translations are bad of it. So I don't, I, that's what I, I, I don't know if there's a good Translations one Translations are always bad. But it's very dense. And I, to be honest, probably didn't even make it through half the book. <laughs> but the, the, I think the meat is like right in the, in the beginning. But he feels, he feels so passionately about, like when I was reading it, I was like, do I, is there anything that I feel this passionate about? Like, <laughs> I feel like I need to reevaluate my whole life. Like he's very mad at the fact that Disneyland and all these different things yeah. are just, creating uh, an illusion 
of a real thing that becomes more important than the real thing. It's very meta. It's very, I, I, yeah, I, I love like French cultural theorists taking on America. I've always thought I have a great fondness for that as a genre of literature. Cause it's like, yeah, it's just endlessly fascinating to think of America as an outsider and try to understand it, what it might represent to people from around the world. I mean, it's many different things, obviously now more than ever, but just like the American West, Los Angeles, the culture of representation, Las Vegas. I mean, how crazy it must seem. Yeah. Is there anything, maybe this will be an interesting thing to end on. Is there anything that you're reading or watching or enjoying mm. these days that people can dig into? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, other than just like thousands of episodes of House of Cards in a row. <laughs> I can't I can't watch that anymore. <laughs> I watched, yeah, I haven't. I've been reading for pleasure for the first time in like two years. And I've just like been reading like a bunch of like pulpy Philip K. Dick books. And like, yeah, I'm reading Claire's book to help with notes. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of like not dumb, but just like sort of more escapist types of fiction or just like, you know, I'm not reading nonfiction. I'm reading fiction for the first time in a long time. I reread The Handmaid's Tale recently, mm. which holds up and is better than the show, of course. Jesse's trying to convince me to read that. I haven't, I've never read it. I haven't watched the show. I got to watch. The book is really read. good. The book yeah. is really, really good. Yeah. The show's okay. The show is like, the show is complicated. We were just having a conversation with a friend of ours last night about how like this like women living in this like horrific patriarchal dystopia, but like the guys are all really hot. <laughs> like it's like <laughs> such an American take, you know, it's like, it's kind of, it well, almost everyone. feels like it's kind of fun. Like <laughs> the boss man is kind of sexy, even though he's horrible, you know, it's like Jesus Christ. Yeah. My perennial complaint about almost everything is in like video form is just like, it's very distracting how good looking people are. And it, like, I have that problem with almost every science fiction movie that if that some celebrity is in like gravity yeah. or something like that. I can't watch gravity because I can't buy George Clooney as an astronaut. Yeah. Like also it's gravity possible. sucks. Ooh. Hot take. Hot I take. No, yeah. it's, I agree that it sucks. You want a hot take? Arrival sucks. <laughs> oh. You want a hot oh. take? Covenant rules. <laughs> I haven't seen it we yet. We have weird taste. Um, I liked it, Prometheus. Everybody hey, hated I it. Liked, yeah, third viewing. I, have, I took my third viewing to love it. Yeah. First, I wasn't so in. Second, I was like more in. Third viewing on a plane all the way in. <laughs> Covenant is a good example of the hotness slash celebrity matrix because it's like there's a bunch of people in the movie at first and you know that the hot ones will die last. You know, like you know that the, <laughs> the hot famous ones will die last. So That's it's like yeah. you just case, immediately right? clock all the characters and you're like, yeah, well, I, well with, the, with one notable exception, which I won't spoil. But yeah, you like you just you just like see the, the least. It's like they die in, in order of their celebrity and hotness. Should we talk about Twin Peaks? Oh. Should we? Are you watching it? Not yet. Should mm. I? It's, it's out now, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's really I good. That's something we're good? consuming There's and enjoying. Six episodes now. Uh, I think it's great. I think it's I genius. Think it's so great. It's really great. Because actually, in retrospect, I, I hot take, I, there's only like four good episodes of the original series. The second season is weird. Yeah. For sure. But it gets back really? on track. All the, the Lynch episodes are good and the other ones are, are, are boring. That, there's more than four then, if that's what you're saying. How many are there? I don't remember. I haven't watched it in there's like There's more than four Lynch years. episodes. No, really? there's a lot. There's a lot. Really? Yeah, they're great. And then, yeah, the new one in this golden age of television, it's so great to see something that's not using all of the same cues to make you believe mm. that it's it's good. Like with, you know, a certain kind of buttery cinematography or yeah, these weird GoPro shots like Better Call Saul and <laughs> and uh, Breaking Bad. Yeah, it steers clear of all of that stuff, and it's just it's David Lynch, and it's right. yeah, it's, it's just the weirdest, it's longest ugly, David Lynch movie. It's ugly in the in the most surprising ways, and it's yeah, it's it's really great, and it's so worth watching. 
I know. He's one of my favorite artists because he refuses to explain himself. And I think that's like the most honorable thing. It is what it is. The film is it. Yeah. It's the film. I haven't exhausted my list of topics, but I feel like I'll have you back and talk, talk more about I think you've asked stuff. us about all the things that are for, that are good and relevant to anyone who would be listening. Did right? You, yeah, I think so. What should people do if they're like interested <laughs> in learning more about this? We'll just, just have links. Just go to back to bed. Go, just go, go back to, to, go go to, to, to bed. The Shark Dick article. I'll, I'll link that one. That's the main thing I wanted what to get you, across. I'm sure that comes up top. Yeah. I don't know. I never know dick. what comes up when you Google. I don't think if you Google so. Shark Dick, oh yeah, if you, you definitely. Shark but if you article? Google me, I don't know. Shark Dick article, what comes up? Shark Dick. Well, we found out dick? by the end of the article that sharks don't have dicks, so it, <laughs> yeah. it's like that's. So maybe it is the top result. Maybe. <laughs> check out Triforium.la. Yep. Check out TeamYacht.com. FiveEveryDay.com. On your on your on your friendly local telephone. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, go ahead and give us a call at five zero three. Five, no, I'm not going to do it. You used, he used to do that all the time. He used to put our phone number in, in album liner notes and we would get calls from like teenagers wow. in the Midwest in the middle of the night. Like, we did a whole thing. Like we were huge into keynote presentations uh, as part of our shows. And so we would do a f- like fake Google Earth to zoom into where we lived and then provide our address. But at that point we were touring so much that we were never home. But a couple house sitters had experiences where people rang the bell. <laughs> And one even gave like a tour of our house. Nice. Had, like people come up and maybe they made a meal together. Oh. There was something like that. Yeah, yeah there were, I can't there remember were the groceries involved. I don't know if they made them. But so people, anyway. but that's not available as a. And we, 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 we don't live there anymore. Okay. So. And no, I don't, don't think we would give our address in this in this sort of climate. No, but okay. we did in the in that that war, the warm fuzzy days of the early to mid two thousands. Yeah, and people can find your music all over the all the music yeah, it's places. Everywhere. Yeah, I think if you just put yacht in the in the hole, if you put yacht in the hole. <laughs> like, we're, like, we're first page. If you put yacht in the hole, like hand comes out and grabs you and sucks you in. The one thing we sometimes say about our, our band and our, ex- our exhausting output is just like we've been a band and a creative sort of semi-creative studio for, or creative semi-studio, depending on how you mm. want to look at it, for 15 years. So, mm. and we've never really changed the name or right. chosen to use that many names other than the name of our band. I mean, Five Every Day would be an exception, but most of the stuff we make is under our name. So but it's under it's a, it makes an exhausting amount of material, but it also, I think, allows us to have a body of work that we could actually point to. So, is there like a newsletter where I can get the full feed of everything? I mean, we should. I mean, do we that. have a mailing list. But we, d- I always feel so guilty about sending emails. Like every email I send, I'm just like, oh, I'm sorry. Even though we know that, like, yeah, email. It's email just marketing go into is your king. Filter uh, to <laughs> newsletters anyway. I just, so. I, I unsubscribe yeah. from like ten mailing lists a day. You know, I feel like the more mailing lists I unsubscribe from, the more I'm on. It's like this endless <laughs> hamster wheel. So I just don't want to add that to people's lives. But we do send but out people mailers. People want it too. That's the sad thing. I know. We're just bad at. It. It's tough out there, man. The endless feed. Okay. Well, I think we've given people plenty of options so they can look up all those things. Thank Just email you. us. <laughs> What's that email? <laughs> Trust at teamyacht.com. Okay. And then you'll get a personalized email response back with each of the... Within 48 hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Really confusing language will be used, but hey, it's, it's not us writing it. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks and see you next time.